Picking up in verse 35. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him about uh, that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Let's pray. Father, indeed, uh, I echo the, the words of Isaiah this morning, the words that you gave Isaiah, that when you send your word, that it uh, accomplishes that which you send it for. And Father, I ask that uh, what you send it for this morning would be the blessing of your people, uh, so that they might exalt your name, that they might be built up, that indeed uh, they might bear fruit. Uh, Father, uh, even Isaiah mentioned that uh, they turn the thistles into cypress. So there was a change from barrenness to fruitfulness, and so I pray that that would take place, such that those who do not know Christ would come to know him, that those of us who do know him would know him in a greater fullness of who he is and entrust ourselves more fully to him, that we indeed might bear good fruit. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. If you fly, you know what happens. At the beginning of every flight, at least here in America, I don't know what happens in all other countries because I've only been to two other countries and flown when I've flown. But, you know, they get up there at the front and they do the routine. Uh, They bring down the little thing that falls down for the oxygen that you know about the mask. Now that I have children, they always remind me, now you take care of yourself first, then you deal with your children. Yes, 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 yes. And of course, it inevitably happens since I travel mostly within the continental United States, and they talk about the flotation device upon which I sit, at which I wonder, how is it am I going to have to use this on the flight from Tucson to Las Vegas? (laughs) Am I going to be the only plane that crashes by the Hoover Dam, you know? (laughs) And so, you know, you get cynical. Don't you? You hear that every time you fly. You start to tune it out. Actually, I usually read now. I mean, I've flown so much that I don't even pay attention to what they're doing up there. I just read or whatever it is that I'm preparing to do. It's easy for us to hear information and to really begin to think that that information is not very important. That information uh, at the beginning of the flight is only important if, indeed, an emergency occurs and you need to find one of the doors, two in the front, two in the back, and two on the sides. If you aren't paying attention at that time, uh, when you really need the information, you might be in big trouble. I thought about this week that sometimes we can lapse into sort of that same similar routine when it comes to sermons. 
But that's information that maybe is nice to know, but maybe I don't need to know it today or this week. And, and we think that it really doesn't connect necessarily with our present existence, our present needs, our daily what's going on. And we can get cynical about what we hear and just relegate our, it to the back of our minds and just focus on something else when Steve gets up and talks yet again. So anyway, our big idea this morning is that the Lamb of God requires a response. This is not just information, but it is information that requires something from those who hear that information. As we noted uh, last week, that what seems to be going on right here, uh, with, with this talking about then the next day, then the next day, is uh, that allusion back to creation with the mindset of a recreation that is about to occur because of the coming of Jesus Christ. So it's sort of like a second seven days of creation. And we're in the midst of that uh, here in the, the end of chapter 1. And we're actually on third day, the third day. Uh, the first day was, remember, the interrogation on the behalf of the priests and the Levites. Um, and second day was when uh, John recognizes and declares who Jesus is. And remember, he declared him to be a few things. One was the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. The sacrificial lamb that uh, stands in our place, just as the ram in the thicket stood in the place of uh, Isaac upon Mount Moriah. But he also declared him to be the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit, because he himself has the Spirit who, who descended and rested upon him. He also declares him to be the Son of God, the chosen servant and Son of God from all eternity who has come into time. And nothing happened. It's the next day. The first thing I want us to see as we look at the next day is seek the Lamb of God yourself. See, what John's account is really rather interesting because you'll notice one of the significant differences between John and the other three gospel writers is there's no temptation. Where's the 40 days in the wilderness? And so I'm going to retract one little thing that I sort of said last week. And uh, last week I said that it's possible that Jesus came to John for baptism, you know, after the Inquisition and, and before Jesus, he, uh, John declares that, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Most likely, all of that takes place prior to the Inquisition. Okay, because for some reason, John does not find it... Uh, important or necessary. I'm not sure exactly why. But nonetheless, this takes place most likely after Jesus has returned from the 40 days in the wilderness, and he's going to begin to, begin to call his disciples, and we find that some of them initiate that whole process here this morning. So, we find that John the baptizer is there. He's got two disciples with him, and just like the day before, here comes Jesus walking by him. Once again, John, the baptizer, points out Jesus, the Lamb of God. That's all he says this time. He doesn't throw in the rest of it. But he identifies him as the Lamb of God. And something happens this time that didn't happen last time. 
And what happens is, is the two disciples who had been following John the baptizer do an about face and begin to follow the Lamb of God. Now, their surveillance skills were new. They didn't, you know, kind of try to not be found. And so what happens is that Jesus recognizes that they're kind of back there, but recognize this. They're not, they're, they're just, they're, they're shy still. They're holding back. They didn't run up to, to Jesus and say, hey, John said this about you. Help us understand that. They're sort of lingering back and, and taking a very, about as passive as you can be while still being active, if that is, is a possibility there. Um, they're following him sort of behind. Now, the word that, that is used to follow can have that general sense of to trail behind someone, as well as the more technical sense of to join to uh, a rabbi or a teacher to be their disciple. And so their intention eventually, I think, is to join him as disciples, but right now they're just sort of following and watching and seeing what happens. It is then that Jesus turns and says to them, what are you seeking? What did they hope to find? What was their agenda? They're following him. Have you known anyone to follow others? I've known people who follow the Grateful Dead because they can't do that anymore now that Jerry's gone. Um, but it just boggles my mind, doesn't it? It boggles my mind. I don't know about your mind. To follow a band around the country just seems weird to me. But I know this, I followed someone to college. I chose the college I chose foolishly, oh so foolishly, because of a girl. <laughs> that didn't go anywhere. It went nowhere. Too big of a college. Never ran into her again. Um, you know, but what are you seeking? What's your goal here? He kind of asks them. And they, they address Jesus as rabbi, which ought to be interesting. Because thus far in the Gospel of John, Jesus has not taught one solitary thing. Now, that doesn't mean he hasn't. It just means that John hasn't recorded it, which leads me to believe that one of those two disciples is most likely John. Okay, But he said, they say to him, rabbi. So now they're sort of initiating that process that, that they might join him as his disciples. They're recognizing Jesus as a teacher, which is really funny in an odd way, not the ha-ha way, but the odd way, when you recognize what John the baptizer has been saying about him. Rabbi is not on that list. And so they know there's something special about Jesus. They're not exactly sure what it is. But they know enough that they want to know more. They're not content with what little they know. So they haven't figured all of this out yet, but still they come. Jesus is not pushing them away. Jesus is, in fact, uh, in this instance, sort of inviting them in when he says, what are you seeking? They say, um, where are you staying? Isn't that, isn't that a profound question right there? Where are you staying? And you know, I thought of all of the famous people I've met. <clears throat> For those of you who grew up in New England, 
or, or spent a long period of time there, Johnny Most, voice of the Celtics. He did the radio broadcasts uh, well into my teen years and early 20s. And you know, once I had the privilege of selling Johnny Most socks. Okay? Very important. But I met other people. Uh, <laughs> in my first job, uh, I, I met Cal Thomas, the, the famous uh, syndicated uh, op-ed guy. But beyond that, when I worked at Ligonier, I mean, you know, I read John Piper's books in addition to meeting R.C., obviously. Um, I met John Piper. I met Sinclair Ferguson. I met John MacArthur. That didn't go so well. Um, <clears throat> But in all of those instances, when I kind of met these guys and I had an opportunity to say something to them, it's like all of a sudden my IQ dropped into about 50%. And I would say something really stupid. Or just go, oh. <laughs> I, I remember the time, you know, uh, I was in the elevator with RC and Vesta. What do I say? We're all alone. I don't want to, I don't know what to say. I should have just talked about baseball. RC just would have been like all in there, man. So anyway, when you come up face to face with important people or people you admire, respect, what often happens is you are tongue-tied, you don't know what in the world to say, and that's these guys. They're just like us. Where are you staying? <laughs> what is that? But it does indicate that their desire to know more about Jesus, their desire to observe something about Jesus. And instead of going, that has got to be the stupidest question I've heard today, uh, Jesus says, come, and you will see. Something of an echo of what we saw in Isaiah 55. Come, you who are hungry and thirsty. Come, buy wine, buy milk. This invitation to come that is not based upon our um, sufficiency, not based upon our resources, it's based upon our need. And Jesus says to them, come, and you will see. And so like these two men, I believe that we also need to investigate Christ for ourselves. We hear things about him, and we ought to seek more about him. That's really the first part of becoming a Christian. Because it really is, you know, you find out a little bit about Jesus, and most of us uh, initially are a little perplexed by some of what we might hear about Jesus, and so we seek to know more about Jesus. But even as a, a follower of Christ, one who has, been, uh, who has made a profession of faith, we still need to know more about Jesus. It's not like suddenly there's the download and we perfectly know Jesus. We're, we continue that process of getting to know who he is, and he continues to say to us, come, and you will see. You will see not where I sleep, but who I am, what I do, what I offer. And so, <clears throat> believing... The these elementary gospel knowledge things means that we begin to seek additional gospel knowledge as well as what I'm going to call gospel benefits. You begin to go deeper into your understanding of who Jesus is and how he is presented to us in the gospel as the confession, Westminster Confession of Faith and Catechism say. And so there's something there about 
this idea of the parable in the parable of the sower about soil. Okay, because there, there are some people who are going to hear elementary truths about Jesus Christ, and they're, they're, they have rocky soil. It just it goes there, it sits, and the birds come and take it away. Similar to the person who sits on the airplane and tunes out the stewardess. Um, you do that too often, you might suddenly forget where everything is. Okay? You might forget about that thing that falls down and panic. Okay, though you have the information. And so they don't bear fruit. But there are those who receive the news, who believe the news, who seek more of this news, and they begin to bear fruit, as we're going to see as we talk about this some more. John Calvin says a few things about this aspect. He says that there are very many, I love this, who smell the gospel at a distance only. They catch a whiff of it but they never trace it down. It's like, oh, I smell something cooking. But you never go and go to the kitchen and look and see what is cooking. So they smell it at a distance only and thus allow Christ suddenly to disappear and all that they have learned concerning Him to pass away. And so when we do not act upon the information about Jesus Christ that we receive, we find that actually it begins to pass away. It goes farther and farther in the back of our minds to never to be found again. It begins to dissipate and disappear unless we believe it and act upon it. Calvin says in a different place, we are for the most part very unlike them, referring to these two disciples, for we incessantly delay because it is not convenient for us to follow Christ. We say, that's nice. Maybe one day I'll need that, just like I'll need the oxygen supply in the plane. One day maybe I'll need the, uh, the flotation device. But right now, it doesn't seem to matter. We can easily fall into that kind of thinking. And so we need to act upon the information that we receive, not just in sermons, but we need to continue to seek Him also in the Scriptures, in our own daily devotional reading, as well as our own study of the Scriptures. We need to seek Him, believe that which it says about Him, act upon that which it says about Him. I cannot help but think, as, as we looked at um, Isaiah 55, there's that one section there that we used in the assurance of pardon, seek the Lord while He may be found. And that really is in light of the promise, or sorry, the threat of exile that we find in Deuteronomy chapter 4. God, God said that, you know what, you're, you're going to disobey me. And it's going to be so bad that I'm going to send you, Israel, into exile. And here's what's going to happen in exile. But from there, you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him if... You seek after him with all your heart and with all your soul. And so there's this conditional promise uh, that is laid out there in Deuteronomy 4. That despite the fact that you've been sent far away, you can still find the Lord if you seek him with all of your heart, with all of your soul. Not dispassionately, not accidentally, not occasionally, not as a hobby, but with all your heart, all your soul. 
This is picked up in the prophets, not only Isaiah, but also we see it in Jeremiah. For instance, Jeremiah 29. Then you will call upon me, and he's talking again about you've been exiled. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. And I should have included the other one. Is that, is that Jeremiah 24? Yeah, I don't have that on here. But he says that he will put that in our hearts. He will move the hearts to seek. And so this is not about works. This is about what he is, he does in the hearts of people, giving them a desire, a willingness, a passion to seek him. And with that comes a promise. It's picked up. James 4. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. So we still have that promise. That if we seek him, we will find him. So let us run. Hebrews 11. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And so each of us have to remember that. There are promises that are attached to this command to seek him. Okay? He is going to be found by us. He's going to reward us for that seeking. And so our pursuit of Christ is, is meant to be a wholehearted affair, a wholehearted endeavor. It is not intended to be sort of something we, we do on the side. Think for a moment of what happens when you make, make a new friend. You meet somebody, you go, hey, you know, they're kind of interesting. I'd like to get to know them more. You act on it, don't you? You call them up, or you email them, or you text them, or whatever is uh, your, your mode of operation at this point in time. Let's have lunch. I'd like to get to know you a little bit better. You seem like an interesting person, however you may frame it to them. But what happens is, is that you, you set time apart to get to know who they are Okay, there's an active process that you engage in, and that is similar to what happens in coming to know who Christ is. You don't necessarily text him, but you set time in which you seek to know who he is as he reveals himself in the scriptures. And so faith seeks Christ. We act on our knowledge of Christ by seeking him in order to know him better. Secondly, share the Lamb of God with those you know. Okay, it says here that they, they arrived where Jesus stays rather late in the day. So presumably they stayed with him, they talked, and perhaps it went well into the night. That's what happens sometimes when you really click with somebody. Next thing you know, it's been four hours, and oh my, i got to go home. Well, it was, uh, you know, there's no street lights there in ancient, uh, wherever they were staying, Capernaum. They're, they're in for the night, okay, with Jesus. Here we see, however, that one disciple is identified, Andrew. Of course, we know that Andrew was a fisherman. We also hear, John also says, the brother of Simon Peter. We're going to get to that in just a moment. Precisely because the first thing that this Andrew does, I imagine the very next day when he wakes up, was to go and find his brother Simon. He sought him. When he finds him, he says to Simon, We have found the Messiah. 
Okay? This idea of to, uh, to find or discover something by inquiry, it's the same in both cases. You, you know, he had to find his brother. It's the same word. Okay? He had to figure out where he was, and some of that might have, might have just been the think-thought process. It's Tuesday. It's 8 o'clock. Where would my brother be? Oh, he'd be by the, by the boat with the nets. Whatever process he went through, asking the father, we're not sure exactly what, but he found his brother. He's looking for a specific person, his brother Simon. He finds him and he declares that we have found, we have discovered, uh, we've come upon the Messiah. One of the beauties of that word in the Greek is that when we transliterate it over into English, we get that word Eureka. Want to know what Eureka comes from? This word, to find somebody. And so in a sense, Andrew goes, Eureka! Messiah! He's here. Now, we don't know everything he understood by that. We're going to see, there's going to become problems with this in a little bit. But he went looking for the Messiah first by following John the Baptizer. He recognizes that there was something special about this man, John. And then when John points out the Lamb of God, he then, with presumably John, follows after this Messiah. The Anointed One, the one who is expected to restore Israel to its glory and its power. And so when Andrew meets up with his brother on purpose, he shares what little he knows with his brother. We have found Messiah. And this is a concept that I think we really need to get down. The gospel follows the relational networks you have. That is the primary ways it spreads, unless, of course, you're a missionary in a foreign context. But the gospel is intended to follow those relational pathways. And remember, Andrew didn't know everything there was to know about Jesus. But he knew something about Jesus, and that something he was willing to share with his brother. Leon Morris, in thinking about Andrew in this particular gospel, notes that every time we see Andrew, he seems to be bringing someone to meet Jesus. And so it's it's as if he grabs his brother and says, we found him, let's go. That's the process that we see kind of going here. And so those who seek Jesus begin to share the Jesus that they found. And so when you find life in Christ, you want to share that life in Christ. And so Peter, years later when he's writing, says this, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense for anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. And so uh, this same Peter, who was sort of interrupted by his brother Andrew, recognizes this need to always be ready, because you never know when the opportunity will come. Now, Andrew sought that opportunity with Simon, and we um, would later with other people, but he just brings people to meet Jesus. It was as simple as that. And it can be as simple as that for us to bring people to meet Jesus. It can be as simple as inviting someone to church to hear a sermon series uh, similar to this one that focuses on who Jesus is. 
so that they can hear that what it means for Jesus to be the Lamb of God, what it means for Jesus to be the Son of God, or, or as we're going to talk about uh, next week, Jacob's Ladder. What in the world? Well, you'll find out next week. Okay, Maybe you'll bring someone. Who knows? It can be as challenging, perhaps, as studying the Scriptures with someone who asks. Yeah. Karen had a neighbor. Want to know more about this Jesus thing a little bit? She had grown up a Roman Catholic and she wanted to understand the Scriptures. And so, you know, they just walked through Mark together. And, and more than teaching this woman, she kind of let the Scriptures teach her. And boy, this woman started to have a lot of questions and ended up expressing faith in Jesus Christ. So it can be as challenging as that. And so it can go anywhere from sort of a simple gospel presentation, you know, the Roman road or one of those other things, or it can be something like defending the faith from attack, similar to, you know, if any of you watch the Ken Ham, uh, Bill Nye science guy debate, not our Bill Nye, the famous Bill Nye, okay? Um, but you understand that there's, it, this, there's a whole variety of ways that this can take place. And we don't need to fit it into one box, which is usually a box that says, wow, that sounds too hard for me. <laughs> but it seems natural for Andrew to want to share what he's discovered with the people he cares about most. And in this particular case, that person is also intrigued. That's not always the case. But in this case, it's true. And so we act on our knowledge of Christ by sharing that knowledge with others that we know. Third thing I want us to, to think about with this text this morning is that if you seek Him, you should expect to be changed by the Lamb of God. Andrew brought Simon to Jesus. Andrew didn't just tell Simon, he brought Simon to come. Let's go. I know where he lives. Okay. Now that information comes quite in handy. Um, but you, you know, did, did Simon go willingly? Did they like run side by side trying to, you know, you know he's, he's, of course, Andrew knows and Peter doesn't, so, so Simon is sort of like a little bit behind Andrew, maybe s slowing his pace a little bit because we know um, he can run fairly fast. But, <coughs> excuse me, did he run like that? Or was he sort of like, you know, sometimes with our kids, you know, come on, let's go. Is he sort of like dragging Simon? We don't know. But he brought him. It probably wasn't kicking and screaming, but it, 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 either way, he went there. And what's fascinating is what takes place. Is that Jesus says, you are Simon, son of John or Jonah. You shall be called Cephas. Which just means rock. Have you ever met anyone and they just change your name? Instantly bestow upon you a new nickname? It's, it's sort of almost like joining you know, a, a, a frat or something. I've never been in a frat. <coughs> My sole experience comes from as a youth watching Animal House. You are Pinto. You are Flounder. It's done. This is your new name. Deal with it. Okay? I'm sure Simon was kind of, what in the world? 
Jesus is exerting his messianic authority, but additionally, in addition to exercising his, his authority as Messiah, he's also prophesying a change in character. Because if we're serious about the Peter, the Cephas, that is presented within the Gospels, he is not a rock. What's a rock? He's firm. He's steadfast. He doesn't budge. Who's Peter? He's Mr. Impetuous. Mr. I live with my foot in my mouth. What happens? We go in Matthew 16 from this highly exalted moment, so to speak, when Peter says, uh, sorry, when Jesus says to them, Who do you say I am? And Peter says, You're the Messiah. And Jesus says, Blessed are you <coughs> because man did not reveal this to you, but the Father revealed this to you. So all of our true knowledge of God is going to be is going to come from God, not from ourselves or from anyone else. Okay? But <coughs> The very next incident, Jesus starts telling them about what's going to happen, that the Messiah is a suffering Messiah, and all of a sudden Peter's like, dude, ain't going to happen. He rebukes Jesus. What kind of disciple begins to rebuke his rabbi? But that's what he did. Peter, the impetuous one, it cannot be this way. There's no way. Such that Jesus says, get behind me, not Simon, Satan. And he says something very significant there. <clears throat> For you do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. Very reminiscent of what we had at the very end of Isaiah 55. My thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. Our default, so to speak, is not to think God's thoughts after him. Our default is not to imitate God uh, you know, and act like he does. Our default is the exact opposite. And so that's why I say that we need to expect to change because there is something profoundly wrong with us. If there was not something profoundly wrong with us, Jesus would not have had to come. Jesus would not have had to die upon the cross. I think of it this way. As I was listening to a little bit of Tim Keller and just got my brain going this, uh, this way on Friday, <clears throat> he didn't say this. This is more my brain kind of going. You don't need a new app. Okay? Sometimes, you know, we, we, want a, we want a new app. We want to be able to do something different on our phones or our or tablets or something, we just get a new app. You don't need a new app, you need a new operating system. That's far more profound than just getting a new, a new app. Okay? Because your, your, your operating system is like Windows. It crashes all the time. Okay? There's something profoundly wrong with it, and it's going to let you down, and so you need a new operating system. And, and that, was, that was, I was thinking that in terms of uh, regeneration, which we're going to get to in, in John chapter 3. That's the implication here. Peter is not a rock. But he needs to become one. And the only way that Peter can go from non-rockiness to rockiness is Jesus himself. 
changing him. Not a self-improvement project. Peter would become the rock in the years to come precisely because of this this life-giving relationship with Jesus Christ. That reality that we talked about in Colossians about how we've been united to Christ and the fullness of God which is in Him has now been given to us. That's how we change. Not by gritting our teeth, trying harder. And so Christianity, which includes the, the gaining of information, is not simply about the gaining of information, but instead it's about being transformed. It's about becoming like Jesus. Which is why in Romans 12, Paul would say, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That, implica- that indicates something that all of us start with by being conformed to this world. We need to be transformed. And this transformation happens through, Paul says, first, the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And if we can go back into that Isaiah 55 language, that what you produce on your own are thorns and thistles and unproductive things. But when we're in Christ, we begin to produce, so to speak, cypresses. Good stuff. Good trees. A a stark difference begins to take place as we, we become renewed and therefore transformed. And so, as Paul would say in 1 Timothy chapter 1, that this begins with this process. We need sound doctrine or healthy doctrine. Doctrine is essential to growing in Jesus Christ. But that's not it. We Presbyterians love our doctrine. That's not enough. In the sense that the, it's not, the goal is not to accumulate doctrinal knowledge, but the goal is for that doctrinal knowledge to be part of that renewal of the mind so that we experience the transformation of the person. We become more like Jesus. You'll never have it without the doctrine. But the doctrine is not the end. The doctrine is a means to something greater. And part of what the doctrine, the the gospel says is that we need and must change and will change. Because Ephesians 2, for instance. We We saw this as well in Colossians. But Ephesians 2. Dead in our sins and trespasses. Obedient to the God of this age. Following after Him. In other words, profoundly messed up. Needing radical salvation from outside. We need the Lamb of God to make us alive. And indeed, we see that's what the Gospel promises. And so that all who follow, Jesus says there at the end of uh, Matthew 16, indeed must deny themselves precisely because our passions are twisted and lead us into destructive places. And the destructive places my passions uh, would, would lead me may be different from where yours will lead you, but they both lead to bad places. And so that whole follow your heart thing, not so good. 
because we have bad hearts. Okay? Follow him. He leads us. He guides us into good places. But that means, in a sense, forfeiting some of what we want because what we want is dangerous to us. And so Christ loves us even though we're messed up. Because remember, it's 855. Come. Not you who have it all together. But it's come you who have need. And I will provide. And so Jesus loves us even though we are messed up. But here's the beauty of it, is He loves us too much to leave us messed up. He loves us such that He wants to change us. To reorder our disordered hearts. To rebuild us. We're going to see more of that as we continue to go through this Gospel of John. And so the Gospel isn't something that you need to know in case of emergency. There's no little sign that you know says, break in case of emergency, or falls down. We need it every day. Because in a sense, every day is an emergency. Our knowledge of Christ is intended to impact us each day. In, in nearly every decision. We see here that we respond to the gospel, to gospel knowledge by, by seeking Christ Himself in order to receive gospel benefits. We see that, that it means that we, we share what knowledge we have of Christ with other people. We see here that we recognize our, our, our profound need to be changed by expressing a desire to be changed. If you haven't experienced that, raise children for a few weeks. Then you'll know, I need to change. It's not just the little people. It's me. But don't deceive yourselves. Listening is not the same thing as believing. Merely hearing gospel content doesn't mean that it has found a place in your heart. Believing is recognizing the treasure that Christ is and wanting that treasure more than anything. And these new disciples are on the, be- the beginnings of that pathway and when we're all in various places on that pathway, but let's not get off the pathway, but press on. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful that despite um, our stubbornness <laughs> and the stubbornness of our sin, um, that grace can break through. We thank you that we don't have to start with all there is to know, but there is that invitation to come. Jesus' willingness to work in us, to change us. Uh, so, Father, I ask that uh, in the months to come, years to come, that we would continue to grow in our our knowledge of the gospel and our knowledge of who Jesus is, particularly as we study uh, this particular gospel. But that in knowing these things, that we would change, rather that we would be changed. That as we um, come to a greater understanding, that it would work its way deep into our heart and and rework how we think rework how we act.
how we choose, what we choose. So continue to be gracious to us and really help us to unpack what you're teaching us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.